1: Hi, uh, this is part two of our chat with Wes Streeting. If you haven't heard part one, it's on the feed. Uh, If you have, then what am I doing talking? I need to get out of the way. I'm going to get out of the way. Here you go, here you go. It's been really interesting listening to Reverend Richard Coles talking about his own, you know, the past few weeks, talking about his relationship with his his Own faith because he just couldn't reconcile its relationship with what was it in specifically? I can't remember. It was like,
2: I can't remember. In, the, in Richard's case, there's been a lot of debates recently. Um, you know, the Church of england's still not doing same sex marriage. Um, yeah. they've come up with this typically Anglican fudge of saying, Well, we'll bless the people, um, <laughs> but not the relationship. Um, and you know, the there are real divisions because the church of England is part of the global Anglican communion. And, you know, I think the church of England is probably more progressive and certainly more progressive than other churches across the world, but they're trying to hold the whole community together. And the Archbishop of Canterbury gets kind of attacked whichever way he he goes on this issue, because he's either not liberal enough or far too liberal, Mm. but it is difficult. You know, it is, it is really, really difficult. And, uh, you know when i when i did come out it you know it really did put a big wedge between me and, and my church and uh you know it's only kind of in recent years that i've begun to sort of really reconcile those two things and have gone to church a little bit more often still not as much as i should always i always describe myself as a practicing christian practicing but still not very good at it
1: um
2: and uh <laughs>
1: literally practicing <laughs> yeah um
2: so um but it's, it is i just find it i just find it desperately sad actually because uh you know i think at, at its core um what christianity is about and i think i think this applies to other major faiths as well but it's ultimately about love
0: mm.
2: and i you know there's a brilliant book if you know if anyone's interested in the in this sort of theme there's a brilliant book by michael coran called the rebel christ and mm. it is all about and this, michael coran for context used to be seen as a very conservative, you know, orthodox Christian leader. And he's gone on his own journey around a whole number of social issues, but particularly homosexuality, where he's... I think he's sort of clarified for me, certainly, as well, you know, because, you know, you look at the the story of Jesus you know, hanging around with prostitutes, hanging around with people with leprosy, going into the temple and like turning over the tables and attacking the moneylenders. And, you know, he was like this rebel and, um, and his message was one of inclusion and compassion and love. And, you know, I, I sort of think if he, was, if he was walking the earth today, um, you know, would, would Jesus be on a pride march Quite possibly. Um, mm. I, I certainly think he would be defending LGBT people from persecution because I think that's at the heart of, you know, of of his example and his life and his story and his kind of urging that Christians should, um, you know, should leave judgment to God and should love their neighbours as themselves. I think these are fundamental messages of inclusion, um, mm. not exclusion. And I find it hard sometimes to reconcile these sort of fire and brimstone evangelical leaders with the story that, you know, empowered and fired up my own faith. And and also the hypocrisy of it as well. You know, people who like have this enormous problem with same-sex marriages about which Jesus said literally nothing. Mm. And yet, you know, you ask them what they're wearing. They're clothes with mixed fibres, often very bad clothes. And, um, (laughs) you know, that's outlawed, you know. Um, they, they're planting crops side by side, you know, that's outlawed in the Bible, you know, uh, I don't see, yeah. I don't, we're not stoning them to death. So it does feel like, you know, there there is a bit of selective outrage amongst the evangelical wing of, of Christianity. And I think, you know, are we reading the same book, or are you just stuck in the Old Testament?
1: Mm. But it's interesting, you say that you, so that was the thing that you connected with, it was about Jesus and the way that he was, that's what connected you with religion for partly
2: also like, to be honest it was also going to church every week with my school it was like the smells and bells of right. high Anglicanism I loved serving in church there's definitely a dressing up theme in my book because like, you know I loved school drama all the way through as well which is one of the things that's given me my kind of inner, in, you know, inner confidence and voice um, literally in you know in case of being able to project my voice and communicate mm. um, I hope well Um uh, but I love serving in church and I love dressing up with a sort of the cassock and the, the sort of black and white stuff and, you know, walking around holding candles and throwing incense around as, a, you know, one story in the book where um, I'm put in charge. I'm, I was made the thurifer, which is the person with the incense burner, you fling it around and... um First time I did it I just put far too much incense in and like the you literally hear the coughing reverberating around the church and as like the kids went out into the daylight their eyes were all bloodshot and red and, yeah. and I, I got an absolute bollocking from the priest I never made that mistake again um
1: but it's 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 interesting what you say cuz sort of um I can't remember how you just phrased it but you know sort of finding your voice and communicating things and and um I remember you once I, was it your best friend who said you were a real show-off at school and <laughs> then and that your was it your mom she would have been more active in politics herself because she was a good communicator and all of that oh my like, nan no my nan, my nan so yeah my, my
2: nan, yeah my nan yeah she so i get you know in some ways my sort of politics is my own and um you know my nan died um my mum's mum died when i was uh 10 years old uh And so we didn't have that many conversations about politics, but I always remember growing up, she was always in and out of, she was always like, I just remember that my binding sort of memories of my nan are always about her rushing around doing something like she was a real doer. So she was either, you know, doing some DIY around the house or for other members of the family or she was like rushing out to a meeting because she was a real rabble-rouser and troublemaker so she was involved she ran the local tenants association for the for the for the council tenants on her estate she and did lots of advocacy for them she uh when when the Mur- when murdoch relocated news international to Wapping, there were these huge protests my nan was at the forefront of that outside with a loud Loud hailer causing trouble. I mean, the irony in that woman did not need a loud hailer. Um, but there she was, like, on any pickets, protests, she was there. Um, and she, I think she would have made an amazing Labour councillor or a Labour MP, but unfortunately um, she couldn't do that because she had a criminal record, um, which is largely due, due to one of the two bills in the book title, Bill Crowley, my, my, my maternal grandfather, my mum's dad. Um and he was in and out of prison throughout my mum's childhood and my childhood. Um he had a string of convictions for armed robbery. Um a, a very um a very complicated character as I describe in the book. I mean, you know, some of the things I've already shared, shared with 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 you today about his um, you know, the abusive relationship with my nan at home, being in and out of prison. Um, that kind of paints the a picture of a kind of really evil, horrible villain. I and mean, actually, to me, he was a loving grandfather. Um, and his life story is one of, I think, real tragedy. I mean, he he suffered real abuse as a child himself, which I think explains so much of where he ended up. He His first encounter with the criminal justice system was around the age of eight. He spent time in Borstal, in um, sort of these, you know, the... What was then the equivalent of youth detention centres, but they were hard places. And by the time he was an adult, he was doing time in real prisons. In fact, my my nan and my nan got caught up in that basically, and um, we're never we're ne- we're not quite sure um, exactly what her conviction was for. And it will be some years before I'm able to access her record. Um, but it was, and my mum was deeply ashamed of her conviction. So uh, it was something she didn't talk about. She was deeply ashamed of it. Um, but apparently, it's something to do with a stolen radio. And um, you know, the, the police, she, the police were looking for my granddad, and she wouldn't turn him over. So they arrested her. So she ended up being put in Holloway Prison, women's prison, with with um, with this conv- through this conviction. And at the time, she was pregnant with my mum. So she was in prison heavily pregnant. She actually gave birth while she was in Holloway Prison and they they took her to the nearby Whittington Hospital and my nan went through the ordeal of childbirth literally handcuffed to the bed and surrounded by prison officers as well as um, nurses. Um, I can't imagine what that was like and then after six weeks you know my nan had to go through the additional ordeal of having my mum taken away from her and given to my great-grandmother. You know mum was perfectly safe there but you know, for a mother to be separated from a baby um, and indeed from the baby to be separated from the mother. I just I look at that whole situation and think, you know, what she did was wrong. But does she really need to be in prison? Is it right to unless there's a really good reason for it? Is it right for women to to be put in prison in that condition? Um, and it was while in prison she um, shared a cell with um, Christine Keeler. Who was at the high, you know, was centre of one of the biggest scandals in British political history, the Profumo affair, because um, John Profumo, the Secretary of State for War, had lied about his relationship with Christine Keeler, and had been forced to resign over it. And um, and Christine Keeler herself was only in prison as a result of a terrible, as far as I'm concerned, a terrible miscarriage of justice. But she got to know my nan, and there was this, you know, amazing friendship That's was struck incredible. between this this woman who. Rub shoulders with, you know, high society and and which Christine Keeler and then, you know, this, you know, short little East Ender, um, you know, who <laughs> was born in Wales and lived in Liverpool for a time. So she's a funny 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 accent as a result. Um and, you know, they became lifelong friends. Lifelong friends. And uh, oh, I, it's, it's
1: it's an incredible story that and and the you know Christine Keeler was not the first, but one of the first big, like you know, those kind of where the media called her a slut and all of that stuff. And what's the amazing song about her? Oh right, God, I've listened to that I I and no idea. You'll know the song, Dusty Springfield, Scandal.
2: Oh right, That's well, I didn't, that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Wow, yeah, yeah because I mean, there's there's a campaign um, being run by Christine's son for her to be given a pardon, which I strongly support. So. Um, mm. You know, if, if ever if ever my um if ever my political career takes me to being home se- secretary <laughs> or <laughs> justice secretary, I'll definitely want to correct that injustice. I mean it's terrible and um you know, she I think pro- I suspect if you look to a lot of women in prison in that time or during that time, there were many women who shouldn't be there and and um and Christine's memoir talks about the number of women that were in prison on account of their husbands, and my nan was certainly one of those. Mm.
1: And also, you know, I, I feel like, you know, all that stuff, as you're talking about it, it's like there's so much that is opaque because it was a long time ago. and And I also feel like when I listen to, like, you know, my own family history that people were not in and out of prison, but, you know, there's a lot of crazy shit going on. And you go, you know, like, I, there, was there any discussion around people's mental health? You know, like, I think people were really often very mentally unwell and had zero things to deal with it. And that's why it was, you know, alcoholism and all the things that, like, bankruptcy and all these things that spiral when people don't have yeah. the support and help they need for things. They spiral beyond where they need to.
2: Yeah, I think that's right and I you know I think a lot of my, the challenges my mum's had in life have, have stemmed from a very difficult childhood. Why did she have a difficult childhood because of you know the the challenges with particularly her dad. Why was my granddad's life so so awful because his childhood was so awful. And then you know I you know I can't speak for my great grandparents. I've never met them. Don't don't know their stories, but you know I think it. You know, as I I'm, as I say in the book, like you can't you can't excuse people's behaviour, or because I do think you know we still have choices, we've still got agency. Just because you've suffered trauma in your life doesn't mean that you've got an excuse to go out and hold up post offices like my granddad did. But it does explain it, and I really wanted. I, the, the one thing I really wrestled with. Um, when writing the book was whether to put down on paper some of the stuff that my granddad only told us towards the end of his life about the the the, the sexual abuse he, he suffered at the hands of his father. Because I thought, well, you know, if, should I tell this story? My granddad's dead now, so it, you know, it, it, I can't upset him. But will there be members of the family who are upset by reading it? I suspect I suspect so because it's it is upsetting. But I thought. You know, I, I just felt that I would be telling an incomplete story about him and his character, and I think that that I can't imagine what he went through as a kid. But I think you know it does explain so much of what happened afterwards, and I felt like I wouldn't be telling a true, uh, you know, giving a true account of that character because um, you know the t- there are there are lots of there's lots of comedy and humor in the book around my around my mum's side of the family even though you know that of of the two because you know the two bills you know got bill crowley and that that my mum's side of the family very very poor and very kind of wheeling dealing you know feeding the family off the back of things that have fallen off the back of a van um you know nicking nicking coats from roman road to get get the kids for school and all that kind of stuff i mean there's lots of there's lots of comedy around Their experience, but then on the other side of the family, you know, not you know a a different stereotypical East End family of sort of you know pulling yourself pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, um, uh, uh, completely honest, straight laced, um, you know, no crooks on that side of the family, and you know I I wanted to tell that kind of complete rounded story Mm. about my family and do it to do it in a walks and all way.
1: and do you do you have a fear that is too much to tell people and i actually don't mean the book I, because i think the book is amazing and i think everyone should tell the truth but i think that we're all ways not we like in your job right you're actually you're meant to be elected you're meant to appeal to the the greatest majority and The one thing I love about you is you're incredibly plain speaking all the time. Like you're one of the few members (laughs) of Parliament. Probably
2: too plain speaking sometimes. But yeah, that's that's true.
1: My question is, why you like that? And that's why I was sort of asking about your family and stuff. Is like, how have you got like that? Because it's an incredible quality. And and most people uh, in politics do not speak like that. I think it's it 's definitely a trait
2: i 've got from my mum 's side of the family actually um, there 's an, there's an honesty, a bluntness, and a candor about my mum 's side of the family always um, uh, my dad 's side of the family probably 're probably a bit more circumspect a bit more bit more reserved on on that side of the family um, but on my mum 's side of the family certainly like we 've always been honest with each other it is Um, you know putting to one side the criminal records you know the there is there is an honesty about our family and a sort of typical stereotypical east end plain speaking we say it how we see it and I think in politics as well I've always felt you know I mean I put on my leaflets when I first stood for elections parliament in 2015 you may not always agree with me but you'll always know where I stand and I think people don't people don't Expect to agree with their politicians on everything all the time. And I always say to people, if you find a politician who says everything you want to hear and you don't disagree with a word they say, they're probably not telling you the truth. They're probably just telling you what you want to hear. And you've got to wonder whether they're saying one thing to you on one doorstep before they go to the next doorstep and say completely the opposite. So I, I, I think um, in, in a time when trust in politics and politicians is probably at rock bottom um, I, I mean, although we do seem to find new ways in in our modern politics of plumbing new depths of mistrust, um, I think authenticity matters and honesty matters. And I've thought, you know, that's the kind of politician I want to be. I want to be completely up And, you know, if that costs me votes or if I get booted out at some point for doing something that I believe to be right, well, that is what democracy is all about. And... Mm. You know, it is about, you know, choosing people to represent you, asking them to do that to the best of their ability and using their, their very best judgment. And the great thing is that, you know, if, if we do a bad job or we let you down or we don't keep our promises or you think it's time for a change, um, or someone better comes along, you can get rid of us. Um and uh yeah, but I'm I mean I am honest. I, I am worried about this book um, at this stage. In the sort of the journey I've been on with it, because because it is so honest, and I, you know, I am a little bit nervous about reactions to the book, and in particular, I mean, I've got a skin like a rhinoceros now after years in elected politics, and also having come through student politics before, and grown up with social media throughout all of that. Um, social media is horrible like particularly Twitter I just think is a toxic sewer and if that hell site shuts down I'll be the first to cheer I can't stand it Instagram is my happy social media place and, yeah. and, and I'm, I mean I'm, I'm very liberal like so if people sort of slag me off you know I'm like well that's just par for the course but on Instagram if anyone slags me off on my post I'm just like nope get lost you're you're blocked um, this yeah. is my happy place and I come here for like people's cat videos and Comedy reels and yeah. to see pictures of my friends. I mean, my Instagram feed is a lot more personal, as you saw when you were looking at my stories last <laughs> night of the um, of the dacharies. You know, that's I wouldn't be posting yeah. that on Twitter, going like, "Hey, I'm at a wedding, getting smashed." But Instagram is kind of more is more um, the human, real side, did, I
1: guess. But do people say to you you shouldn't post that, and that that's not? what a politician should be
2: doing. Oh, yeah, Joe is always like... I was just thinking when Joe listens to this, he's going to be like, what were you doing posting those pictures? Because he doesn't always...
0: um,
2: He's not as active on Instagram as I am. Um, uh, I I think, again... um, Yeah, it wasn't the motivation for writing the book, but I do hope that one of the things that comes out of it is people become a bit more interested in the backgrounds of their politicians because... Even someone like Keir Starmer, who, you know, because he's Sir Keir Starmer, people assume he's from, you know, very privileged background. You know, you hear him talk about his upbringing. You know, he really knows what life is like for for, 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 for people who are struggling. You, you know, his mum, she was a nurse in the NHS and then she felt really critically ill. You know, she relied on the care of the NHS and, you know, they didn't have a great deal of money when Keir was Growing up, so they suffered of things like, you know, some things I described in the book Comes to things like the phone being cut off. Angela Rayner is um, probably the other Labour MP whose backstory and childhood. Uh, in fact, I think with Angela Rayner, I think her, her childhood's probably more traumatic than mine was. I, I, I've talked to Angie a bit and her her childhood sounds a lot more like my mum's Um, hmm. in terms of, you know, the real hardship she experienced. Um, and I think it does... It certainly informs my politics and my values, and what I want to kind of do in politics is that's in large part driven by you know wanting to make sure that kids from backgrounds like mine have the same chances and choices and opportunities as kids from the wealthiest backgrounds. Um, but I think at a time when cynicism and trust in politics and politicians is such a big problem. I hope that this sort of helps to plug some of that gap and reminds people that we are human beings we are just as flawed um as everyone else but also you know we we're not all born with silver spoons in our mouths we're not all you know we do, we we do have a grounding in in like the struggles that people are going through at the moment especially with you know things being the way they are in the economy and the pressures on families finances mm-hmm. you know a lot lots of us have lived that and that does him Impact on our sort of our politics and our outlook and what motivates and drives us, and I think that's part of bridging the gap between politicians and the public. I think. Um,
1: would you ever go on Celebrity Jungle? No way.
2: There, you would not see me eating kangaroo testicles or like rolling around in like those horrible creepy crawlies for any amount of money. Um, really, what I would. I would love to do strictly. Um, I would absolutely love to do Strictly one day. But 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 the the problem is, you know, I think it's the sort of thing you can do when you're an ex-politician. I know a couple of um, Labour MPs who've been offered to do Strictly and turned it down. I'm like, are you mad? My God, you should do Strictly. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in it's a big time commitment and being an MP is a more than full-time job. And in fact, you know, one of my rules when I was writing this book was like not only can it not interfere with my job as a labor mp and as shadow health secretary um no one no one must be able to kind of point at my performance in my job and say, oh, right, yeah, he was really quiet around that time because he was writing that book. Why wasn't he doing his job? So I nearly killed myself writing this book. <laughs> because, How And I, I went in fact, I, well, I went into overdrive work-wise because I was like, I have like almost overcompensated and I'm, I'm a workaholic anyway. So I've like thrown myself, and I love my job. So I've thrown myself into that. So no one can possibly say, oh, well, he doesn't do his job properly. He's all right, lazy git, because they can see that is objectively not true. I'm everywhere all the time doing stuff um what the way I did it um (laughs) Joe will tell you um I just sacrificed all of our time together (laughs) so what limited time so I mean last summer I was literally on holiday literally sat by the pool with my laptop on my lap writing this book and then Mm. you know I would write on my iPhone on the tube to and from work in the morning because my commute's about an hour so actually that's decent chunk of time just to do little bit by bit by bit. And the other thing is, I think if i if 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 the publisher had approached me and said, Oh, you've got such an interesting kind of job or story, we'd like you to write a history of the NHS as the shadow health secretary, or we want you to write a kind of a history of London's East End as an East Ender. I would have said no, because a book of that nature would require, you know, require me to spend months buried in a library doing all these, you know, all the background reading and having all my references lined up and all the stuff that comes with writing a book of that nature. Whereas with this, because it is my story and my family's story, um, I'm, I'm sort of writing it from memory, which is, a different sort of challenge, but actually much, much easier because it's my own story. I don't have to invent characters as fiction writers do. I don't have to do loads of research about events I was never part of or never witnessed because um, it's my story. And the, where, the only research I did have to do was talking to parents and and my re- last surviving grandparents um, to get a sense of their stories, their childhoods and their parents uh, and I love that. In fact, I've now got recordings on my laptop of conversations with my parents and grandparents and other members of my family that I will have for the rest of my life. And I'd encourage everyone actually to do something like that, whether you're writing a book or not. Just sit around, sit around the kitchen table, and have a conversation with your family about the family story, because you know you, you, one day you'll treasure those recordings when they're gone.
1: It's very, very true. You know, and um, it's uh, it's something we don't do because we're not used to it um well listen wes i'm gonna let you get back to your hangover um, <laughs> this, has been, this has been such a lovely chat what is your um what's your hangover cure have you eaten yet or are you gonna go and now a fry up what happens
2: i literally had a yeah quite appropriately given we're talking about one boy two bills yeah. and a fry up i had a fry up um which has not necessarily saved my life today but it has definitely saved me from the worst edges of a hangover Um, hangover cure um, I think I think you just have to I mean I normally just drink loads of diet coke to get over a hangover um, and kind of sugar's good for hangover as well I mean this is like terrible advice from the shadow health secretary but um,
1: hangover
2: hangover do do as I say not as I do is my public health message for today (laughs)
1: Well, listen. Congratulations on the book. And, um, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful, and I'm I'm so pleased you are putting it out there because if we had more politicians like you, we'd be in a better place.
2: There are some people who would violently disagree with that, but um, uh, but no, thanks, Chris, and also thanks for thanks for this podcast as well because I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one of your listeners who absolutely loves this podcast and it raises a smile and sort of you know uh, it's, it's just it's, it's a brilliant listen so so keep doing it because uh, we love it thank so thanks you. very much for having me on this but it's great to be on it rather than just listening to it
1: oh that's very sweet of you that's very sweet indeed thank you wed so that was my chat with west Streeting uh you performed well for a man with a hangover how are you with a hangover kate
3: uh a grumpy Grumpy
1: girl. Grumpy. And are you someone who goes for a run, drinks water, or are you like, let's get the cheeseburger?
2: Uh, Big Mac and a large Coke for me. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Ketchup?
3: Absolutely.
1: Chips? Fries?
3: Fries. Yes, fries. Absolutely.
1: Big Mac meal, large. Wow. Big Mac. I've only ever had one Big Mac in my life.
0: I only ever
2: eat them when
1: I've got a stinking hangover. That's all they're good for. <laughs> um, next week, we'll be chatting with Logan Brown, no less. Logan is the iconic cover star of this month's Glamour magazine, who is on the cover as a pregnant trans man. Um, it's such a cool picture. And suffice to say, the photo that graced the cover of Glamour magazine has caused quite a stir, gone viral, uh everyone's arguing about it and i just think it's amazing um the photo not the arguing um so we're going to talk to logan really exciting have a google um get in touch stay connected at homo sapiens on instagram facebook at homo sapiens podcast email your comments your questions your agony and your uncles to hello at homo sapiens now this has happened just as we are arriving at the studio where we were driving to so how cool are we, Kate? Our timing's impeccable. Um, it's been a pleasure riding with you all. Listeners, thank you so much for listening all the way to okay, the end. Okay, bye now.
3: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...
0: I would buy Spirit Studios